I do want to just go ahead and invite you to find John's Gospel. I hope you have a copy of God's Word, whether paper or electronic, as we're continuing to make our way through uh, John's Gospel and asking God just to, to teach us, to stretch us in our understanding of and our belief in Jesus Christ. And as we think about that, I just want to talk to you about questions today. And you know, life is filled with questions, right? A lot of those questions, in the end, they don't really matter. Uh, some of us are just filled with useless information, aren't we? <laughs> you know, we know things that really don't make a difference, right? I mean, there are some questions that just don't really impact our day-to-day -day life, like uh, which, which film won Best Picture from the Oscars in 1977? Well, probably doesn't affect anybody's life, right? I mean... Some of you are saying, who, who really cares, right? Some of you are starting to Google it right now. So it's actually Rocky. Rocky was the picture that won Best Picture in 1977, believe it or not. But some questions are much more consequential, aren't they? We asked little kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? Then we start wrestling with questions. Will I go to college? Where will I go to college? Should I get married? Who should I marry? Do I take this job offer or do I stay where I'm at? How in the world are we going to pay for our kids' college and prepare for retirement all at the same time? How are we going to take care of our aging parents? Who's going to take care of me when I'm the aging one? On and on the questions go. Our life is filled with questions. Some of them very, very important. Some of them that change trajectory of our life depending upon how we answer them. But I want to suggest to you this morning that in a world full of questions, some of them trivial, some of them very, very important, that there are two central questions. Two central questions because they not only impact the way that we live our life right here, right now, but they impact our forever, our eternity. And those central life questions uh, can be summed up simply in these words. Who is Jesus and how have you responded to him? Who is Jesus. In fact, as you could say that this is almost the dividing line among humanity as to how we answer those two questions. Who is Jesus and how have I, how will I continue to respond to him? C.S. Lewis, writing years ago, said, Christianity, if it is false, if all the claims of Jesus Christ, all of that ends up being false, it is of no importance. It is, it is a trivial pursuit, right? It is of no importance. Let's just shut it down. Let's all go and try to figure out life, right? If Christianity, if the claims of Christ are false, it's of no importance. He says, if, however, it's true, the claims of Christ are true, it is of infinite importance that nothing could be of more importance. The only thing that it cannot be 
is moderately important. It can't just be a compartment of your life. It can't just be kind of a side thing that you pick up every now and again when you want it or need it. It's either of infinite importance, central to all of my life, or it is of no importance at all. Jesus made some radical claims about who he was. And some of those begin to unfold in this fifth chapter of John's gospel. And he claimed, among other things, to be the son of God. And if you've been with us, you may remember the kind of the context of this. There was a healing that took place. He physically healed a man who had been invalid for 38 years as the chapter opened up. And then there was kind of this, this pushback, this discussion about uh, doing this and doing it on a Sabbath and, and all the implications of that along the way. And we mentioned last week that, that in this fifth chapter of John's gospel, the gospel begins to turn. The story begins to turn because the opposition to Christ begins to kind of crystallize and begins to harden. And we find that playing out here in the rest of this chapter. Jesus as the Son of God. He claimed to be the son of God, they, and they understood what that meant. And notice some of the implications of that. As the son of God, he said, the son is equal to the father, is equal to the father. Verse 16, and this, this is right after what we've been talking about, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. We'll get back to the Sabbath in a little bit. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. A few years ago, Lifeway Research in connection with Ligonier Ministries uh, did a survey. And in that survey, they found over half of Americans, and shockingly, even a third of those who would describe themselves as evangelical Christians, agreed with this statement. Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. Jesus was a good teacher. He was a moral man. It's a good example. But he was not God. I would suggest to you, if you've probably never heard that, you probably haven't had a lot of conversations with people not inside your bubble, right? But Jesus pushes on that. He said, no, 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 you, 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 can't, you can't claim that. He said, I am declaring equality with God. And he mentioned in, in this context that the Father is still working. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought, I thought the Sabbath was, was about the creation account, and, 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 and he rested on the seventh day. Yes, he rested from the work of creation, but he didn't work, rest from sustaining his creation. And I mean, think about it. If God took a day off, the universe would collapse, Right? I've said it time and time again. Listen, every time my heart beats, every time I draw breath in my lungs is a reminder that God is still at work. He is still sustaining his creation. He's still at work in the midst of his creation. See, the Pharisees thought the Sabbath meant idleness. 
And they had all these rules to describe how you should be idle, right? But for Christ, it meant work because the Father was working. And yet for the Pharisees, the Sabbath was hardship. It became a hardship. It became this onerous thing instead of the gift of God we talked about last week. But for Christ, it meant rest. For you and I today, as believers, we have rested from our works so that we can be free to do his work. You say, Jeff, what in the world does that mean? We have rested from our works. Remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at the healing, the physical healing pointed to a greater, a spiritual healing. We looked at Ephesians 2, uh, 8, 9, and 10 and talked about, for by grace we are saved through faith, not as a result of works so that none of us can boast. We, we have rested from our work. We have rested from any thought that somehow we can be good enough to earn God's favor, to earn God's forgiveness, to earn God's love. We rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ. But then the very next verse, verse 10 in Ephesians 2, says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to walk in good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we have rested from our work so that we can be free to do his work. And Jesus, in doing that work on the Sabbath, was claiming, and they understood it, and that's why they were trying to kill him. He was claiming to be equal to the Father. But not only that, but the Son does what he sees the Father doing. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And we've looked at this a little bit last week, but I just want to lift it back before us because it's the model for us to follow. You can think about this as a secret to a powerful life, a secret to living in the flow of God's power, being a channel of God's power. And it's that twofold truth. I can do nothing by myself. He's the vine, I have the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. I can't guarantee another beat of my heart or a breath of my lungs. I can do nothing by myself. But by his grace, I will do what I see the Father doing. That's, that, that's what Jesus modeled for us. That's what Jesus calls us to. I, I don't pursue my little kingdom, but I am now part of a greater kingdom. I am part of his kingdom work. And last week we talked about a challenge to one another. Hey, what if, what if for the next 30 days, what if between now and Thanksgiving, every one of us at least once a day and maybe multiple times a day just prayed, God, God, what are you up to in the world and how do you want me to be a part of it? What are you up to in the world and how do you want me to be a part of it? And this might not be some great, you know, ah thing, you know, the heavens part and all this. I mean, it, may be, it may be just encouraging somebody. It may be just as somebody comes to mind and you pray for them. It may be a, an act of love, an act of kindness, a sacrificial way of serving somebody. It may be sharing a gospel or planting a seed or watering a seed or whatever it might be. But God, you're at work in the world. You're still at work in the world. How do you want me to be 
a part of it. That's what the son did, even as he walked on the face of the earth. The son was equal with the father. He does what he sees the father doing. But the son, he says, also has the power to give life. He has the power to give life. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. He says, understand that I am the source of life. I am the giver of life. He was the agent of creation. He is involved in the creation. He not only gives physical life, but more importantly in these moments for us, he gives spiritual life. He restores us to life with God. Later in John's gospel, Jesus would say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, though he experience physical death, Yet, he shall live. You can't make that claim <laughs> if you're just a good teacher. You can't make that claim if you're just trying to be a moral guy. But, but the one who is equal with the Father, who has the same power to give life as the Father gives. And this is kind of, I understand, this is a kind of a heavy theological message, if you will, uh, because it is, it is the foundation of answering those central life questions. Who do you say that Jesus is? He has the power to give life, but not only to give life, but he also goes on to say, the Son of God, the Son has all judgment. All judgment has been entrusted to him. Let's, let's break this down. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now let's pause. Hear what Jesus is saying because it's very, very important in the world in which we live. He's saying the Father and the Son are equal. They're equal in character. They're equal in works. He does what he sees the Father doing. And they must be equal in honor. They must be equal in honor. Said another way, my attitude toward Jesus is my attitude toward God. Now, why is that significant? Because that separates authentic Christianity from every other belief system in the world. Even other monotheistic, single God belief systems, Islam, Judaism. It comes down to this question. If you do not honor Jesus the same way that you honor the Father, you are not worshiping, you are not connected to, you are not in touch with the one true God. And I know, I know in, in this culture, maybe that seems like such a radical statement. It was a radical statement back then. That's why they were trying to kill him. But he said, this is who I am. Am equal in character and works and rightly equal in honor before the Father. And then he goes on to talk about the judgment. And we can think about it as judgment now and judgment then. Judgment now, let's just, we're just keep following the conversation here as Jesus is talking. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, right here, right now, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so so he also has granted the Son also, excuse me, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He picks up the Son of Man title from the prophecy of Daniel in the Old Testament. But notice what he's saying there. There is a judgment. There is a judgment that is actually taking place right here, right now, in real time. That judgment centers on who we understand Jesus to be, and how we have responded to him. See, those without Christ are spiritually dead. You read that verse and you says, when the dead will hear the voice. Well, how can the dead hear his voice, right? Well, they're spiritually dead. Paul talked about that. He said, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And with the spiritually dead, by his grace, he speaks into our lives. He speaks to us about the reality of who Jesus Jesus is and calls us to respond to him, turning from our sin and entrusting ourselves to him. And those without Christ are spiritually dead. That's real-time judgment. But the moment we trust Christ, we cross over. We cross over. We move over from death to life so that he who believes in him does not come into judgment but is passed, has passed from death to life. Life that there is a, a real time judgment, a real time judgment that even as we're walking around physically, we are either spiritually alive or spiritually dead. But even beyond that, he says, not only is there a judgment now, but there is a judgment then. There is a judgment that is coming uh, upon us. So we just continue to, to let Jesus teach us uh, directly here. Uh, he, he talks about, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So he's, he's giving this, this understanding. There is a real-time judgment right here, right now, depending on what you've done with Jesus, but there is a judgment that is to come. That there is a resurrection of everyone. Some will rise out of their graves to live. That they'll live, that this resurrected body will join and be rejoined as we come into his presence. Now, bodies that were perishable will become imperishable. That which was mortal puts on immortality. And there is this resurrection to live, to life in the presence of God the Father. There's a restoration to the life that was part of his original creation design. But some will rise out of their graves to be condemned, to face justice, a righteous wrath from a holy God. Now, Jesus 
wasn't making this up in a vacuum. This is, this is the, the, the understanding that you find weave throughout Scripture, even, even in the Old Testament. I'll just give you one quick example of that. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel speaking under the inspiration of God's Spirit said, And many, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There is a judgment now, real time. But there is a judgment then. Some of you may say, wait, 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 wait. go back to verse 29. <laughs> well, what, is that? what does that mean? Because we've been saying it uh, by grace, through faith, not as a result of works. And then verse 29 sounds like he's judging on the basis of works. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil in the resurrection of judgment. What does this mean? This is consistent again with what you find throughout Scripture. It's consistent with Jesus that believing, and when people talk about believing, it's often very superficial. Saw that earlier in this gospel in John chapter two. He, he's not gonna entrust himself to folks. He knows, he knows uh, that their belief is only a, a kind of a response to we want more of the miracles. They weren't trusting in him. They just wanted more of the show. The integrity of believing is always judged by a person's activity not just by what a person says. Said another way, faith that is genuine shows forth. It shows out. It becomes evident. Not that we become suddenly perfect. We're, we're on this journey of sanctification, of a, but we begin to move. The hum, importance of human action as almost a litmus test of human belief is a frequent message in the New Testament. Remember, we just talked about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you're saved through faith. Then the very next verse, verse 10, so that we might walk in those good works which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James talks about faith without works is what? Dead. It's not real. It's not genuine faith. Matthew 25, the parable of the, the sheep and the goats, and there's this, this separation, and you go there and you read this separation, and it, it's on the basis of, of how they, they took care of the poor. And he's saying, if you are truly in me, if you're truly walking with me, it'll show up in the way that you live. Go to the very last book of the Bible. Go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 talks about the great white throne judgment. And in that great white throne judgment, there is an evaluation of the lives that these people lived. Why? By grace we're saved through faith, right? Somebody said it's, it's by grace alone, faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. It transforms us from the inside out. That's why I, I spent time a couple weeks ago talking about the, the kingdom that a gospel that doesn't impact the way that we live our lives is a false gospel. It is an incomplete gospel. It shows up in our lives. George Will, in his book, Men at Work, talks about baseball umpires, and seems appropriate to talk about that with the World Series going on right now. 
And he described a baseball umpire as someone who was carved out of granite and stuffed with microchips. That's kind of an interesting word picture, isn't it? And then he talks about, he, he talks about a, a famous uh, baseball player, and even if you're not a baseball fan, you probably know the name of Babe Ruth, right? Uh, this great home run hitter of uh, yesteryear. And one time, Babe Ruth was at the, the, the plate, and the umpire behind the plate also was named Babe, Babe Pinelli. And Babe Ruth was up there, and the, the, the count was, was got two strikes on it, and pitch came across the plate, and, and Pinelli yelled out, strike three, you're out! And fans, you know, they're, they're booing. Thousands of fans in the stands, they're all booing the call. And Babe Ruth turns to Penella and he said, listen, there's 40,000 people here who know that last one was a ball to made ahead. And Penella just looked at him, said, maybe so, but mine is the only opinion that counts. <laughs> hey, I know your mama thinks you're wonderful. Maybe some of your friends. <laughs> but the only opinion that counts is Jesus Christ. Because the Son has all judgment entrusted to Him. You say, well, that's easy for you to say, Jesus. <laughs> You got any proof? <laughs> well, the Jewish culture of that day, if you were going to, to make a claim or particularly if you're gonna make an accusation against somebody in a court, you couldn't just do it by yourself that you had to have supporting evidence. You had to have two or three witnesses to corroborate your, your story and your testimony. And Jesus, knowing who he was talking to, calls out witnesses. And in these brief verses that remain in the chapter, he calls out five witnesses to the fact that he is indeed who he claims to be, the son of God. And the first witness that he calls is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. In verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. He says, all right, let's start. Let's start with John the Baptist. All the folks that were going out, some of you who are even now questioning me, you went out to see and to listen to this man, this man who said, there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. This man who at one point looked at Jesus, pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist, the one who you, at least for a while, claimed to revere and to, to follow and to celebrate pointed to me. And just as a quick aside, Jesus gave one of the greatest commendations that you could for a servant of God. 
He called him a lamp. He was this, this burning and shining lamp. And that's what you and I are called to be. Jesus Christ is the light of the world as he comes and takes up residence in our life. We take his light. We are to shine his light into the darkness, into the dark places. We're not just to hang out in holy huddles where we just kind of light up one another, but we are to take that light of the world into the darkest of places. We are to be a lamp that illuminates, that points people to the one who can transform their lives. Jesus Christ, the light of the world. John the Baptist fulfilled his kingdom role not by being the Savior, but by pointing people to the Savior. John the Baptist was his first witness. His second witness was the works that he did. The works that he did. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You want proof? Look at that guy jumping around who was an invalid for 38 years. Look at this, look at that. You know the things he did in Jerusalem already? The works that he did. Remember what we said. The miracles that are recorded, specifically the ones that John recorded in his gospel, weren't just for us to be kind of amazed. Wow, that's pretty cool that that happened. The physical healing, that's awesome. Uh, but it pointed to a greater reality. It pointed and testified to who Jesus was. And the, the followers of Christ, those first followers of Christ, understood this. So that post the crucifixion, post resurrection, at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter is preaching a sermon and he's, he's talking about who Jesus is. And notice what he, what he calls forth as the witness. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He said, you know. You witness these things. So he's speaking to this crowd in Jerusalem. You know the works were God testifying to who Jesus was. And that leads to the next witness, the Father. The Father himself. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you did not have his word abiding in you, for you did not believe the one whom he has sent. The Father himself, certainly through his works, has borne testimony, but also there were some incidences along the way where there was like this declaration from heaven. You remember in Matthew's Gospels, it tells us about Jesus' baptism, John baptizing Jesus, and behold, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This testimony of the Father, directly of the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. And the Father used the Scriptures. He used the Scriptures. Verse 39, Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He's reminding them. He says, you, you claim to be these experts in Scripture, but the Scripture points to me. The Scriptures find their fulfillment in me. And Jesus would help his followers to begin to connect those dots along the way. Uh, Post-resurrection, you may remember in Luke's gospel, that account of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those two men who were kind of confused about everything that was going on and the the resurrection of Christ. And Christ walks with them, post-resurrection appearance. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, being Jesus, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Scripture after scripture, Old Testament reference. And as you read the New Testament, you see them drawing all of these Old Testament references because the scriptures point to him. Some of you in your Bible study groups are, are studying uh, the Old Testament book of Isaiah right now. Isaiah is filled with prophecies pointing to Jesus Christ. The scriptures, but then he even kind of narrows that just a little bit more and calls forth Moses as kind of his final witness in this, in this session. Moses, verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Listen, not only is the Old Testament as a whole, what we would call the Old Testament as a whole, but he said even very specifically, because there was a group within Judaism that only held to the first five books, he said very specifically Moses. The writings of Moses that I have traditionally, I think, accurately been, been uh, attributed to Moses. These books of Moses point to Jesus in at least three specific ways. And again, we could spend hours on any of these topics, but the first is history. And just the unfolding events of history uh, all point to Jesus. Even right after the fall in the Garden of Eden, there was that declaration from God of the, the seed of the offspring that was going to come and would crush the head of Satan, pointing forth to Jesus. Think of uh, later in Genesis, Abraham taking his son to offer him as a sacrifice that God intervenes and he supplies a replacement. He gives to him a substitute that pointing forward to the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. There's history and then there's what we would call typology uh, that particularly in the worship of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the, the temple, all of these things were types, sometimes representations pointing to the fulfillment that would come in Jesus Christ. Many, many examples, probably one of the easiest ones to, to see and understand is the Passover lamb. 
So the Passover lamb, the, this blood that was shed so that the, the avenger would, would pass over that led to the exodus. That remembrance every year as they would, would uh, kill the Passover lamb and that pointed to the lamb of God who would have his life given, his blood shed to cover my sin and yours. It was this type pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. And then there was just prophecy. And certainly the Old Testament prophets, but remember, we're just talking about Moses here, and Moses himself talked about the one who would come. One example, Deuteronomy 18. Moses uh, just recording the words of God speaking to him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. You remember earlier in the gospel, in this gospel, John said, I'm not the prophet. John the Baptist said, I'm not the prophet. He's still to come. The prophet, right out of Deuteronomy 18, right out of Moses, was Jesus Christ. And you see in the New Testament, they connect Jesus as the prophet and his role as prophet to this prophecy from Moses in Deuteronomy 18. He said, you claim to revere Moses. You claim to, to believe and honor Moses, but Moses points to me. Now, I understand this has been a different message. This has been kind of a, a heavy theological message, right? And I hope I didn't lose you in, in those truths. But there's a reason. There's a reason it's recorded in John's gospel. And that's because the central life questions are who do you say that Jesus is? And how have you responded to him? Because how you answer those questions not just even with your lips, but with your life, changes everything. It changes your here and now, and it changes your forever. It's been said that in the end, all of us have to conclude, if we take Jesus at his word, one of three things. We have to conclude that Jesus is either a liar he, he knew this wasn't true. He was just making it up. He just wanted to mess with people or he wanted to use people or, or whatever ego trip he was on, but he knew it wasn't true and he said these things and he was a liar. And a lot of folks that even if they don't believe in Jesus aren't quite comfortable going there because they've also said, well, he was a good teacher and a moral man and liar and good teacher and moral man don't seem to go together. Well, if he wasn't a liar, maybe he was a lunatic. I mean, it's not that he was intentionally lying, but he was deluded. He believed these things were true, but they just weren't true. So he was kind of just, he was misguided. Sincere, but sincerely wrong, right? I mean, if I stood before you and said, hey, by the way, just want to let you know, I'm God. <laughs> Y'all would say, you're in trouble, <laughs> right? Because I know you, it's not true, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Maybe, maybe he was just sincerely deluded. Or, instead of liar or lunatic, maybe he's Lord. 
Maybe he is who he claimed to be. Maybe he alone can do what he claimed to do. And you have to decide. Because if he's a liar, if he's a lunatic, then this is of no importance. But if he is the son of God, if he is king of kings, if he is Lord of lords, then it is of infinite importance. The only thing, please, 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 don't insult him, don't insult yourself and your own intelligence. The only thing he cannot be is of moderate importance. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And so I leave you with two questions. And a lot of times in our teachings, we'll give you right after a message some questions to make this personal. But I just want to keep you focused on two questions today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not just with your lips, but with your life. And how have you personally responded to him? Would you pray with me, please? Father, there is no more important question in a world full of important questions than these two. And Father, I, I pray by your gracious Holy Spirit right now that you would just speak as only you can to our hearts and to our minds. And Lord, that you would remind us of the greatness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who did for us what we could have never done for ourselves. And Father, I pray that you would call us to a life response that transforms how we handle life, how we handle all the other decisions, how we handle our relationships, our time, our money. Father, that we would indeed joyfully honor and recognize Jesus Christ as Lord of all. Father, help us not just to be talkers, but to be those who live as if Jesus is who he is. We ask this together in his name. Amen.